Our, our text this morning is Jeremiah 33. You can turn there, start working your way there. Jeremiah chapter 33. So what a great day we've had already uh, celebrating baptism. At the conclusion of our message today, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And then I've been looking forward to our fellowship meal. We, we sometimes, uh, you know, it, it's, really, it's really a difficult thing to get this microphone not feeling good. Okay, there we go. It's, it's a hard thing to get everybody together, isn't it? So we, we've kind of learned that over the, it seems like we were really busy before COVID and then COVID hit and we, we all were at home and then we, we all came back from COVID and decided to get twice as busy. So it's always hard to get everybody together, but uh, we're going to have our lunch this afternoon. So immediately after our service, I want to thank our kitchen committee and I know a bunch of them are over there working, uh, getting the food ready and prepared for us to enjoy a wonderful meal together. We cooked, uh, I think, 100 pounds of ham, or I say we, very loosely. I didn't have anything to do with it. That's good for you. Uh, But we got 100 pounds of ham, so we've got plenty to eat. People have brought sides for us and desserts, so we've got plenty of food. So you come and eat all you want and fellowship, and then we'll have our, our, our budget vote. I want to thank our budget, our, our, our finance and stewardship committee for putting our budget together and doing such a good job with that, and our personnel committee, and just a lot of, lot of work that they've put in this uh, fall uh, as we've tried to get all that together for a church that's growing. And we've, of course, got challenges. We have challenges before us. We need to do something about our buildings, and, and we are, are addressing our transportation needs, and, and all those sorts of things are expensive. And as that budget goes up, I just implore you, be ready. And and as we look at uncertain financial times, let's just trust that if we're faithful to give sacrificially, God is going to bless. I don't know anyone in here. Uh, You can raise your hand if it's to the contrary, and I know you won't, because we've learned that you can't uh, outgive God. You can't be more faithful than Him. And He blesses us as we give sacrificially to His work. And so my challenge in that area is always... We want to be a growing and maturing church. I don't know any Christian who says, I want to be immature. And if we're going to say that we want to be a growing and maturing Christian, uh, we need to be mature in all those areas. And that giving is one of those areas in which we want to be financially, uh, financially and spiritually faithful. So I encourage you there to, to know that we're going to vote on a budget that's ambitious, a budget that's going to require all of us, uh, members of this church, to support that budget so that we can accomplish uh, what we our, our ministry goals for 2023 and beyond. So I'm excited about it, uh, and we just have to trust God in that, and, and I look forward to seeing all that he's going to do uh, in the year to come. So again, I want to thank Jan and our kitchen team. A couple things coming up this week. Uh, on Friday, we will have our Christmas, um, excuse me, Saturday. On Saturday night, we'll have our Christmas Eve service. And that begins at 5 o'clock. Now, if you are on the property committee, I need you to put your fingers in your ears for a minute. Uh, are they listening? Make sure they're not listening. But, but we decided this year to go back to real candles. Again, I th- see, I thought that would be greeted by a, a tremendous applause. Uh, okay, there you go. Thank, all, thank, thank the 10 of you uh, for clapping there. Uh, well, you know, we've been using the flashlights, and they just don't have the same Christmas Eve vibe. You know, we've been using those since about 2014, 
and they're fine, but nothing beats a good old-fashioned candle. Nothing sets a building on fire like a good old-fashioned candle. <laughs> I'm always scared about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm thinking, did someone blow these Advent candles out? I'm always, I always get a little bit nervous. But we've got the candles, and we've bought the little cups that you know, to hopefully contain the wax. So we're going to gather in here at 5 o'clock. We're going to have some people share testimonies. We're going to sing songs, uh, just the beloved uh, Christmas carols, and then we'll light the candles, and we'll have someone light the candle from the Christ candle, and we'll pass that back through the congregation, and that's just always a highlight. So we do it at 5 o'clock. It's a little early, but it's dark by, by 6 or so, when, or you know, 5.30 when we start singing, and that should get you time to come to the service and then still do whatever special things you do with your family on Christmas Eve. And then we'll gather back at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning for Christmas service. Now, I saw somebody said, you know, said uh, uh, these, a lot of these churches are canceling their Christmas service. I don't think you should do that. I saw a guy on Facebook, he said, or, or Twitter or something, he said, not having service on Christmas is like having your anniversary and not taking your wife out, right? So we're not going to do, we don't want to do that. So we're going to be here on Christmas Day at 11 o'clock. If you're in the choir, I need you in the loft or in the praise band, be here at 10 o'clock, and I'll send you a, mess, a, a reminder, and Alyssa and, and, and uh, Cynthia, are, y'all are singing, I need to let you know that, and learn your name. Uh, I don't know why I just blanked on that, but I did, and now I'm kicking stuff over. Uh, but Alyssa and Cynthia are going to sing a special with the choir, it's going to be fantastic, so instead of, you know, like canceling or doing less on Christmas, we're going to do more. And so we're really going to celebrate uh, our Christmas service. So you be here. And then I need to mention that I have seen weather reports. Have you all seen the weather reports? Okay, and we're all afraid of another snowmageddon. But let me just go over our severe weather policy with you so you'll know what's going on this week. So if we can physically get here, even just a few of us, uh, and usually that means Dale because he turns everything on, uh, <laughs> If Dale can make it to church, we will have church, all right? So we get here, we have church, and we broadcast it on Facebook and on YouTube. So you use your best wisdom and discretion. If you don't need to get out and risk falling, you know, but some, some people, they love it whenever it snows, and they put their four-wheel drive on their big truck, and they like to come to church and put salt out. There's like a whole group of them that do this. And so we, we just have church when the weather's bad. But if you can't make it, and, and it's not why, if it's not wise for you to come, you just watch at home, and we'll trust that uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll trust God can kind of knit our hearts together even though you're watching from home. And I'll also send out a flock note if, if anything changes. So we will have church uh, Saturday and Sunday, and then on January 1st, everything will be back to normal. We'll have Sunday school at the regular time and church at the regular time. So that's your announcements for now. I know we've got a lot to accomplish here in the next 30 minutes, so let's get to it. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14. Jeremiah 33, 14 is where our text will begin. We'll look at seven verses there. Father, we ask as we look at your word now, as Scott prayed, that you would just open up our hearts to hear from you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I read an article this week that said 2022 was the year of implosion. The year of implosion, when things started to fall apart. And specifically, this author was pointing to a few things. Pointed to Liz Truss. How many of us watched that from over across the pond to see the British Prime Minister make it? How many days, Adelaide? 45 days. She lasted 45 days before she was essentially run out of office for losing the confidence of the people. We've seen the implosion 
in some ways of Donald Trump and his candidacy, uh, of Elon Musk and the Tesla stock falling. We've seen uh, the, 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 the debacle in the Ukraine and with Vladimir Putin. And we've watched all this take place. And it's just one of those wild things about life that you see people in certain positions and you think, is this the best we got for leadership? Maybe you're looking at the pulpit and thinking that. I don't know. <laughs> is this the best we can do? Because there's something in our hearts that longs for a better leader. There's something in our hearts that longs for someone to, to guide us and lead us and even rule over us with wisdom and righteousness and justice. And so when we see people leading badly, it stirs something in us to desire someone to lead us who can lead us in the way of righteousness. We desire for something that will last forever. Yesterday, or, or Saturday night, I guess I need to go ahead and confess this to you. So Saturday night, I was up here, or Friday night, I was up here working, and I turned the corner, I kind of the parking lot, turned the corner, got on Main Street, and I mean, I turned, and just like two seconds after I turned, I saw the flashing lights behind me. I was pulled over. I always hate that, you know, and thankfully it was at night and it was late, and so uh, actually I was coming up here to, put the, the, to turn the heater on for the baptistry for, for, for Peyton, and uh, I got pulled over and Miranda walks up and I thought, now surely I stopped at that stop sign. I always stop, I mean, I'm a rule follower. I don't run stop signs. And Miranda came up, she said, Mr. Edgerton, did you know you have a, flat, uh, a headlamp out? I said, no, I didn't know that, but I was so relieved that's what it was. So <clears throat> I, sh- I-, I was tempted to send out a flock note to the whole congregation. If you just saw me getting pulled over, <laughs> I wasn't breaking the law. I just have a headlight out. So we stopped at AutoZone on the way to my parents yesterday, and we got the light, and I changed it at my parents' house. We did Christmas with them. And uh, so I'm sitting there changing it and like reaching in here, you know, and trying to turn that little thing, to uh, turn the light to get it out and put the new one in and take all the stuff apart. And you know what you think whenever you, you do that? You think, how come they can't make a light that lasts forever? How come nothing lasts? You know, even we got these lights and they said, these will burn for 20 years, but you know what? In 20 years, someone's got to go up there and change those lights out again, bring a lift in here. And, and when we, we, we long, though, for something that will last forever. We long for someone who will lead us well. Something that we can trust. Something that won't spoil. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 33, we find Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a prophet. He's called the weeping prophet because he was one of the last prophets to be prophesying as Jerusalem and Judah fell to the Babylonians. And so here we find Jeremiah in chapter 33. He's begun to preach very unpopular messages to the people in Judah, starting in Jeremiah chapter 7, where he basically goes in a temple and says, you guys have been worshiping other gods. The Babylonians are coming. God's going to wipe you out, and there's nothing you can do about it because you've been so obedient. I'm going to tell you to repent, but you won't do it. And they say, oh, Jeremiah, even though you're a son of a priest, you can't ever come back to the temple again. Well, they kick him out of the temple. He was wildly unpopular. You know why? Because he told them the truth. He was banned from the temple. They tried to kill him. They threw him in a well to kill him. He was rescued. Eventually, uh, church tradition says that, that he fled down to Egypt whenever King Nebuchadnezzar said, you can just go wherever you want. He went down to Egypt, and they, the Jews that had gone down there apparently killed Jeremiah. They eventually were able to get him. 
But he was telling them the reason that they hated him, the reason they wanted to kill him, is he was telling them bad news. He was telling them of their sin. He was telling them of their need to repent. He was talking to them about their unfaithfulness to a God who had always been faithful to them. He had bad news for them. But in the middle here of Jeremiah chapter 33, when we look at this, in the middle of all this bad news that's contained in this book, we see some good news. He says in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming. To these people that he's testifying destruction to, he says, But behold, wait a minute, it's not all bad. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Here's this section of hope in the middle of a siege by the Babylonians in the final days in the last gasps of Judah. Jeremiah says God is going to keep his promises. And, and, and so it's interesting to note that in Jeremiah, Jeremiah incidentally is also the author of the book of Lamentations. And so in many things that Jeremiah, he, they call him the weeping prophet. Why is he crying? He's crying because he's lamenting. He's grieving over the fact that God's people are so unfaithful to him. He's crying over this. He's weeping at their disobedience to a God who's been so faithful and so loving. And so he's lamenting and he goes from the grief and one thing Jeremiah does, even in the book of Lamentations, as we study that, and what we have to do, the difference between grieving and lamenting is that when you grieve, you're sad and you're crying. But, but the difference between grief and a lamentation is a lamentation starts off with the grief and then it moves to the promises. Somehow in our grief as Christians, we don't stay there, do we? We don't grieve like the rest of the world grieves because we have the promises. So we move from the lament and the grief to the promises. And getting from the pain to the promise in your own life is the key. And really that's what is so wonderful about Christmas, isn't it? Christmas is the moment where we move from the pain to the promises. When this baby is born. God isn't going to forsake His people. God will not leave any promise unfulfilled. He has promised a Messiah. He's promised a Savior. He tells us about that Savior in verse 15. Look at it. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, which I think are still to come, in those days, they've begun now, these last days have begun, but they will reach a more a fuller a, 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 a conclusion, a, a greater fulfillment. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And look at this next clause here. And this is the name by which it, what is it? Jerusalem. This is the name by which Jerusalem will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. There's a covenant that God makes with David in 1 Kings chapter 2. He says, as long as your sons do what is right, you will always have a descendant on the throne. And the reality is, his descendants did not always do right. His descendants were sinners. They didn't keep the covenant, but God was still faithful to his promise. And if we look at the genealogy of Jesus that you see in Luke and in Matthew... We see Jesus is physically <clears throat> descendant from David. He was in the, the proper tribe. He was in David's tribe. He descends from David as one of his ancestors. But God keeps his promise to always for David to always have a man on the throne in a very unusual way. It was the only way that this could be fulfilled. 
We needed a righteous person to come sit on the throne, so God himself had to come sit on the throne. God himself had to come be the king. God himself had to become a descendant of David. Isaiah explains this to us in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. What will he do? He'll rule. The government will be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to hold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. That's the promise, isn't it? This one, this mighty God is going to come reign on the throne of David forevermore. This is the righteous branch that Jeremiah speaks of in chapter 33. Jesus is the righteous branch of the family tree. And that city that is so attached to David, the city of Jerusalem, one day Jerusalem will be so faithful to Jesus Christ that the city itself will be called the Lord is our righteousness. If we're trying to find the gospel in this passage, there it is. All the other religions of the world say, be righteous for God. You do your part. You do as much as you can and God will meet you halfway. That's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message of Christianity. That's not the gospel that Peyton is trusting in as she enters the water. She's trusting in this gospel. I can't be righteous. I need someone to be righteous for me. How will God save Judah? How will God save those in Jerusalem? How will God, the Messiah, save anyone that puts their trust in Him? He will do it by becoming their righteousness. Here in a moment, we'll take the supper. That's what we're celebrating. Peyton, when you enter the church, the mar- when you come to Christ, and a marker of entering the church is being baptized. But today is a special day because you've been baptized now. You can take the Lord's Supper. And so, whenever you take the Lord's Supper, Peyton, from here on out, every time we observe this Lord's Supper, what you'll be doing is you'll be saying, I still believe all the things I believed when I got baptized. Do you understand that? And what are we saying when we come and, come and be baptized? I've just got a problem with that speaker today. What we're saying when we come to be baptized, understanding that this is not magical stuff. It's Welch's grape juice and crackers that we get from our Sunday school board. They're symbolic of two things. The blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. But what you're saying when you take this Lord's Supper is you're saying, I needed the righteous branch. You're saying, I need this blood that represents the life of Jesus. I need it to be spilled for me. And I need this bread. I need this body of Jesus that was sacrificed for me. I need to be made righteous before God. This was the only way for me to be saved. And why do we use food? Why is that what Jesus used to symbolize his blood and his body? Because you take food into your body and you take drink into your body every day. And what happens if you don't take food and drink into your body? You die. Your life is dependent on food and drink. 
And so when we come to this supper where we take food and drink, what we're acknowledging with this symbolism here is we're saying, I need Jesus for life just like I need food for life. If I don't have it, I die. If I don't have Jesus, I die forever. But if I trust that His blood was spilled for me on the cross, that His body was broken for me, I trust in what Jesus has done. I trust in who Jesus said He is. I repent of my sins. I put my faith in Him. And I know that He will save me. What I'm saying when I take the supper is that I'm dependent upon Jesus for eternal life. I need Him to save me. And the reason we do this supper over and over again until Jesus comes back is to remember Him, to proclaim His death, and to say, I'm always going to be dependent upon Jesus to sustain me. I need Him like food and drink. That idea is expressed in verse 18. Look what Jesus does for us in terms of being a a priest, a mediator, someone who makes us right with God. It says, and the Levitical priest, in addition to the throne, says the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Well, the sacrifice that Jesus made works forever. It's a once-for-all sacrifice that applies forever. And Jesus is the one who will be the great high priest forever. Now, Jesus was not a Levite. He came from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is a different kind of priest. Jesus is not a Levitical priest. He's a priest in the order of who? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And if you say, well, who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, you need to read Genesis, and you need to read Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 7, where the author of Hebrews makes the case that Jesus is the great high priest forever. He, was the, he is the one who will perfectly fulfill the Levitical priesthood because he is the one, uh, the, or excuse me, the one that Levi descended from actually was, was Abraham, brought tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. Now you've got to read uh, Hebrews 7 to truly understand that case, or I can explain it to you after church. I don't have time now. But understand this about Jesus. He fulfills the priesthood in a way that the Levites were unable to fulfill it. Now the thing about Melchizedek in the Bible is he shows up in the book of Genesis after Abraham has a battle. And Abraham goes to this priest whose name is Melchizedek to pay him to bring him an offering and to pay him a tenth of his spoils from the battle. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, here's Melchizedek, he shows up. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Melchizedek is the king of peace. Melchizedek shows up to meet Abraham with bread in his hand and wine in his hand. The king of peace. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know when he died. So he has no beginning and he has no end. Does that remind you of another king of peace who has no beginning and who has no end? Who shows up with the blood and the body? Who is the king of peace? Now, the first time I ever preached for any of y'all was at a church in Hearst with the search committee came and we met halfway between Texarkana and here and I talked about Melchizedek and fourth grade Adelaide, y'all remember? I said, now, who does this Melchizedek remind you of? 
And there was silence. And Adelaide looked up from her drawing and she was like, Jesus, I mean, come on, everybody knows that. (laughs) Well, Jesus is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's the priest with no beginning, with no end. He's the king of peace. He comes and gives us not wine and bread, but his blood and his body. And so he perfectly fulfills this, what the Levites can't, because Jesus is an eternal priest. Every Levite, someone will have to help me. I I should have looked this up. I think either at 40 or 50, they had to stop serving. So the Levites had a limited time of service, and they all died. So they can't be priests forever. But Jesus, because he's an eternal priest, can be a priest forever, applying his sacrifice forever. You can always trust that Jesus, if you come to him, will make peace between you and God so that you can be acceptable to God. There'll always be a man, the man Jesus, who will do that priestly work for you. And finally, in verse 19, we see how God is faithful to keep his promises. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. There's a theme in the Old Testament. There's a theme, and really it runs through the whole Bible, is a theme of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. He says there's no way that you can break my promise to send one to reign on David's throne. There's no way you can break my promise to send a Messiah. It's not going to happen. We have the proof of that when the little Christ child is born. There's another theme in the Old Testament. It's a theme in our lives, as I mentioned earlier, that we look for what will last. We look for the perfect leader. We look for the place where things are laid to waste, but then they are restored. We love to watch remodeling shows because we love to see that. We love to see something broken down, fixed. We love to see something fallen, be restored. And so when we look at Scripture, have you ever wondered why so many stories in Scripture are about failure? How many stories are about people that you would say, well, let's go look at the Bible characters and see how to live. Don't do that. I mean, if, you haven't, if you've ever read the Bible through, and we did this project during COVID of reading the Bible with our kids, and we would get to just certain parts where Melissa and I would look up and be like, oh my gosh, we're reading a rated R book. This has some very uh, 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 mature themes in it about people that are sinning in tremendous ways. We mostly see people who disappoint in Scripture. They can't keep it together. They sin They die. They start strong and they finish poor. They're just like us, aren't they? And so it leads us to ask the question, where's the better prophet? Where's the better king? Where's the better priest? When will all of this mess be fixed? And so we see these four things in our passage today. We have a better prophet to speak on behalf of God to us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a better king to rule over us and not exploit us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a better priest to stand between us and God and make peace forever. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a better covenant in the new covenant. It's one that can never be broken because God keeps his portion. God keeps his promise. He sends the Messiah as he's promised to do. 
And then this new covenant is different than the old covenant because God says, I'm going to do what's necessary to save you. And then I'm also going to do what's necessary. I'm going to give you, I'm going to take out your old heart and I'm going to put a new heart within you. And this new heart, when you trust me, this new heart, I'm going to move to walk in my ways. So Jesus doesn't just give us a, a chance at salvation. He gives us the power to trust him and to be faithful to the very end. What a promise. And the answer to that and the fulfillment to all of that was this little one wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, a prophet, a priest, a king, a true promise keeper. And at Christmas we celebrate what God has initiated. We celebrate that in our supper this morning. We celebrate what God has accomplished. But I ask you the question, is this the reality in your life? Is Jesus your prophet, priest, and king? Is he your savior? Has he changed your heart? Are you trusting in his promises? Have you put your faith in him and repented of your sins? If so, as we celebrate this supper, it's a celebration truly. And if not, I urge you today as you watch us take this supper to put your faith and trust in Jesus and be saved. Trust in who he is and what he has done. Repent and believe that you might be saved. And then you will truly understand why Christians marvel at Christmas as we celebrate this righteous branch that was given for us.